Hello and welcome. My name is John August, and this is episode 627 of Script Notes, a podcast about screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters. Today on the show, we welcome back the OG Script Notes guest host, writer, director, showrunner, producer, Aline Brosh McKenna. Welcome back, Aline. <gasps> I'm so excited to be here. There's so many people I need to thank. Mm. Oh, wait, this is not, that's not the right place to do it. You have to mm. comment on how surprisingly heavy the award is. Oh, it's so heavy. I'm going to put it down. Yeah, I I'm did just going to put it down. Yeah, you can put it down and then pull out your notes of people you need to thank. It's going to mess up the line of my dress. Yeah, 100%. Today, I would like to talk about agency in the sense of characters and what characters are doing in our stories, but also in real life people about making choices about what they want to do next. And then you've seen in the workflow, we have another round of How Would This Be a Movie, where we discuss stories in the news and think about how we would adapt them into quality filmed entertainment. Aline, have you stretched? Are you ready for this? I'm, I'm really ready. I'm ready for a word I'd never heard before. Yes, which is, how, how are you going to pronounce it? Agentic? Yeah, agentic. Uh, it's a word I saw a ton this week, and so I thought we'd talk about that. It's, it's agency as applied to real people, kind of, and uh, it's, it's a word. I plan to use and misuse this word liberally. Yes. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's how you use catchphrases to, uh, to fill things in. Do you remember at the end of the day? Do you remember when you first heard that? Because it was during our careers that that became a thing. At the end of the day is an industry term? I think it's an industry term. Interesting. There's so many circling backs and oh, yeah. um, touchings of bases. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the lingo and the jargon has gotten so much worse as the business has gotten more corporatized Mm -hmm. because you used to go to meetings and there could be a guy smoking a doobie with his feet up on the couch, just like talking about whatever, maybe telling you about his marriage. Yeah. And now when you go in, everyone is so official and they have all of these bits of jargon that clearly came from a retreat. Mm. And we once sat down with someone who we were, I was asking him about what they were looking for. And he said, regionality is something that we take into consideration when we look at our buckets. Yes. Oh, buckets is a thing. Yeah, buckets, buckets. Is, is a big thing too. Buckets is a big thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into all those choices that we make. I also wonder whether like coming out of COVID, a lot of the times where you're meeting with executives, you're still meeting with them on Zoom. And the small talk is also different on Zoom because like there's less of that sort of like getting in a room and sort of getting comfortable. It's You're still asking what people did over the weekend or where they are, but like you're also in there homes, which is a different thing too. It's really weird. I try not to scan the background too extensively. Yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic, how many bedrooms did you see? So many. So many. Yeah. I was like, guys, turn just turn it around. Sit on the bed would mm-hmm. be my thought. So yeah. I'm not looking at the bed. We saw, I saw a lot of beds, basements, guest rooms, yeah. pets. Vacation homes. Vacation homes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who moved to Colorado never moved back. So yes, all those. Um, and our bonus segment for premium members, Aline and I are going to talk about the experience of being empty nesters because we both sent our kids off to college. And so uh, what we're looking forward to, what we're, how we're adjusting, how many more dogs we're going to get, uh, the process of becoming empty nesters. That's right. Now, Aline, we're recording this on the day that Oscar nominations are due. Have you submitted your Oscar nominations already? I have. I have indeed. So for folks who are not voting in this, uh, I thought we might just talk through what the process is because... It's not kind of what you would think. It's no longer a form. It's a website you go to. And you and I are both members of the writer's branch. So tell us about sort of what you went through as you picked your your entries. Yeah, it's interesting. You vote for your branch and best picture. Mm-hmm. And then on the second round, you vote for everything. So when you're nominated, it really is your peers because mm-hmm. it's your branch that's choosing. And 
you know, I've heard people advocate for the technique of really listing all five or six or mm-hmm. I think it's five. Yeah. But then some people will say that, like, if you really love a movie and you think it's doesn't have a lot of chances of being nominated, that you just vote for one. I would say that having filled it out early this afternoon, because you're ranking them, I think that there's much less of a problem with sort of filling out the rest of the, of the card. I don't think it's going to be as big of an issue. Fill out the rest of the card. Right. This this was an extraordinarily good year. I want to say the same so thing, too. So many good movies. And I I can't. I don't know what is the trend that resulted in this, mm. but sometimes the awards movies can have a spinachy homework vibe yeah. to them. And I felt like this year there were so many that were wildly enjoyable, like holdovers and poor things that were just, you know, packed with entertainment and fun. And we stayed home over the break and I really enjoyed watching all the movies that were out. Yeah, I did too. There have been years where I feel like I'm kind of scrounging to get those last, the fourth and fifths filled in there. And no, I, I, had, I had multiple choices I could have put in as a, other really good movies to, to nominate. So I'm really curious. By the time this episode comes out, people will have seen what the nominees are. But there's really good movies out there. And so I would just encourage people, if there's movies that are nominated that you're like, you haven't heard of yet, they really are good and they really are worth seeking out. And I always vote for a straight up comedy mm-hmm. um, because it's such an underrepresented genre. And as discussed many times on this show, it's just as hard, if not harder, to write. So I always find a couple of straight-up comedies that I like and throw them in there. Yeah, comedies and also animation for me is making sure that we're recognizing the writing that goes into animation. Because a lot of times those animated films aren't written under guild contracts, so they don't, they're don't they not eligible for WJ awards, but they are eligible for other Oscars and We stuff. are righting wrongs with our votes. We are really administering justice. Uh, another thing that happened this past week is I got an announcement for Final Draft 13, which is now out. So... I make Highland, so of course I don't really use Final Draft, but you write in Final Draft, don't you? I do. I tried another program, but the people that I collaborate with was revolted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of like everybody had to get it or nobody and yeah. nobody wanted to change. So, you know, it's uh, the devil you know. I don't know that I'm super up on every update. I got to say, I don't know that I update until it becomes impossible exactly. not to update. And my general feeling about updates, and I'm not alone here, is I approach them with dread as mm. I almost always find it's a worsening. Yeah. Like this new iPhone update where like to get a GIF going, you got to go through like several, I'm tapping a lot of stuff yeah. to get to my kittens with a ball of yarn. And that's what she wishes with Gively and her kittens. Yes, that's right. And I'm wondering that you like, what does Final Draft have at this point? The way I use it is so simple that... Yeah, you're using it probably the same way you've used it for the last 15 years. And you have a very successful workflow to do it. And to the degree I sympathize with Final Draft is they are selling a product where they sell it once and then they have to convince you to keep buying the new version of it. So they have to keep adding new features to it. But the features, to my eyes, are not particularly rewarding. I'd be curious if listeners write in and say like, oh, I actually do use these new features. Tell us about it. But like... There are these ribbons and these cards and all these other things. And Aline, you're a person who uses this every day, but I I suspect you're not touching any of those things. Ribbons? I don't know what that is. Mm. Cards? Are those slug lines or like uh, No, that that actually looks like little index cards. It takes your whole script and then breaks it down into little index cards. Oh, right. Okay. Well, here's the thing. I'll mess that up. Mm. Yeah, whatever that is, I will um, change it to a point where I will then have to text my son and ask him how to undo things. Yeah. Yeah, it's just you want a simple, 
You know, unless it could do stuff like tell you to get up and go for a walk or make your lunch for you, which would be amazing because the just the constant drumbeat of what's for lunch. If Final Draft mm-hmm. could assemble a turkey sandwich on focaccia, that is a game changer update I would pay for. Yeah, absolutely. So many of the features that, that apps and Final Draft and other ones add, they feel kind of like productive procrastination. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like oh, it's a different way to, to look at your thing, or it's, oh, like I, I'm filling out all this stuff, and I'm just here to tell you that. You and me and like nobody other professional writers we know of really use all those things. Are you still doing longhand? I still write longhand for scenes starting out. You do. Yeah, Yeah, I know other people who do that. That's so interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's the same if you're doing it with a... A rock and a chisel. Mm-hmm. You just got to get stuff on paper. Although I'm, I'm not. I don't mind things that get you in the mood. Mm-hmm. As you and I have discussed, the project of writing is a lot like getting into cold water, where you're sort of splashing little bits of it on your arm to acclimate yourself. So what's interesting to me is some people really, really use those features to really, really outline. Mm-hmm. And for me, and I think you and I are the same. It yeah. will kind of kill my fun. So I think it's probably better for people who really love to have it all like completely worked out. Yeah. Writing is one of those weird things where it's the overall imagination. It's figuring out what the shape of the story is, but it's also what is literally at the cursor. Like what is the next letter in this word? What is the next word in this sentence? It's that kind of work. And I don't see these tools helping you very much in doing that real, actual, granular writing work. Yeah, you can spend a lot of time without pages. And so I guess my sympathy for Final Draft in these apps is that they're not making any money unless they can convince you, Elaine Brosh McKenna, to spend another $199 or whatever the upgrade fee is for Final Draft to buy it again. That's the that's the tough thing for them. Well, don't they do that by making the old versions kind of unusable? Eventually, they'll stop updating them so they won't work with the new versions of Mac OS. And then you have folks who don't upgrade their machines for forever. And that's also a challenge. Mm. That's bad. All right. So the main topic I wanted to get into today is actually kind of related because it's about taking control of your circumstances. And so... We've talked before about main character energy. I think you actually had some follow-up conversations about main character energy and what protagonists in general want and what they're they're doing. But usually when you hear about agency, it's usually about lacking agency. So Aline, when someone says like this character lacks agency or we need to see more agency out of this character, what do they mean? Like what, what is the note behind that note? An expression that I like is pulling the levers mm. because I think that's a very nice visual where sometimes you'll have a character that's not affecting the outcome of, of the story enough. And so they're serving more like spice or frosting as opposed to being the main course or being something which really moves the story forward. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this happens a lot with female characters, especially in like big bombastic genre movies. You'll sometimes find like the woman who is the quote unquote scientist. All she does is sort of spit out mm-hmm. a bunch of lingo. The poor lady was like, you know, trying to memorize in her chair, but that's not actually pulling the levers of the story. Yeah. And so it's it's really important. And it doesn't mean you have to do it all in the same way. Some some characters can be moving a story forward by being absent or by being passive in some way, although that's probably a higher degree of difficulty. But making sure that your characters are involved in every turn so that the turns don't happen without them. And if there is a coincidence or if there is a dropping into their lap of something, that it's justified by what you've set up before. I don't mind a happenstance. You know, happenstance is sort of a lot of times when you tell your friend the great story, it's like, and then I turn the corner in cost plus and there was, you know, John August looking for a throw pillow. You know, yeah. sometimes coincidences are fine, but if you find that your character is not the one sort of controlling the, the, the puppet strings, 
then it's something to look at. I'm really an advocate of making writers' lives easier. And the more active your character is in pushing things forward, the easier it'll be. Yeah. I think when I hear that note about like, oh, it feels like the character lacks agency, it seems like they're reacting rather than acting. They're, they're responding to things that other people are doing rather than doing the things themselves. They feel like they're sort of corks floating along in the water and just being moved by the waves. And so we want to see them sort of having the ability to make choices and actually making those choices. And so we're going to talk about the term agentic in just a second. Agency, I think to me, is the ability to make choices. And agentic is sort of making those choices. It's, it's a, you're actually seeing the characters take that initiative, take those actions and do those things. Before we dive into it, I do wonder whether our notions of agency tend to be a little bit gendered and culturally loaded. We have a sense of, you know, agency as, as like the hero with the sword who runs it and does the thing, whereas having agency in a story may look different for, you know, a female character in another cultural situation. Hmm. Yeah, I think good storytelling requires protagonists who you're engaged with and you're engaged with their decision tree. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is like sometimes we rename these things as main character energy or agentic or whatever. They're all kind of the same thing. It goes back to our final draft discussion. It's sort of, you know, these are elemental, you know, you're making bread, you need flour, water, you need, you know, there's a few things you need. I think giving it another name, I mean, I'm looking forward to the first time I'm in a meeting and someone says agentic. Oh, it's I, I will text you instantly. <laughs> but I think that the reason that people will grab at certain bits of jargon like that is so that you can sort of have a shared conversation about what's important in storytelling. The thing about main character energy is just our idea of what a main character is or does. Mm -hmm. You know, in Poor Things, for instance, you know, she's got diminished capabilities in certain ways, but she's, I'm going to say, wildly agentic. I mean, she's constantly going, oh, I want to go over there. And it's very disruptive to everyone around her making big choices and big swings. And I think that's part of what makes, to me, a story entertaining. And I tend to be less entertained by movies where people are sort of being buoyed by fate. But that's a genre also. You know, that's a certain type of storytelling too. It just feels very different from what I do. And then, you know, I I really like things that grab you with putting you on a story tow rope right away. Yeah, absolutely. So, this term agentic, I found it in a bunch of, I sort of fell down a rabbit hole looking at these blog posts, which were using this term and, and sort of linking to each other, talking about the term. And it relates to sort of like grind and hustle culture and that sense of like, you know, doing all the things to sort of put yourself ahead and sort of put yourself first about taking risks professionally and socially. It also ties into that sense of like seeing yourself as the protagonist in the story and not being afraid to sort of take up space and sort of demand attention. And now, now you're talking about stories or life? Both. And so, as I was reading these blog posts, I, I was seeing people writing about themselves as characters, writing basically taking a look outside themselves and saying, like, well, what should this person who is me do in this situation in order to achieve those goals? And just like we always have, you know, heroes have their I want songs. They're basically like giving themselves permission to sing their I want songs and actually pursue those things and not stop earlier in, in the process, not settle for mediocre or okay, but sort of push themselves harder. So I guess Mostly, I'm going to, I want to talk for a little bit about sort of real life people, because I think um, our listeners are also heroes in their own stories. And there's pros and cons to acting more agentic themselves. Well, that's where you, I think you do get into different sort of people feeling entitled to be more agentic than others. Mm-hmm. And um, 
something I think I'm quite annoying about when I work with women is is reminding them that they just asked for permission to do something or they just apologized before they did, did something or they just apologized before they pitched something. And, you know, I'll often find that men will use humor to cover very aggressive behavior. Mm-hmm. So they'll say, you know, I fired that agent. They did something very kind of aggressive and they're proud of it and they think it's funny. Mm -hmm. And with women, it's always like, not always, but it can be a very tortured path just towards saying what you want and going to get it. And obviously it's because there's social repercussions to that Yes, and it can be not a cute look. I think you'll find that women put a lot more exclamation points in their emails. Mm -hmm. Not the first person to say that. We were talking the other day about the devastatingness of when someone, you're texting someone and then they, they throw in an XO. I don't know what that means to men, but for women, that means I'm done now talking to you. This text conversation is done. Yeah. And it's an XO. It's a <laughs> firm hug and a kiss of farewell. Well, as you're saying this, I'm thinking back to our text conversations and sort of like, how do we, you and I decide like when that thread is done? And it's it, it can be tough to sort of know asynchronously. I don't know what you're doing. You don't know what I'm doing, whether we have the moments to sort of really engage in that. So like finding a nice way to close a text conversation can be challenging. But I, I agree with you that it is often, there's a gender and a power level aspect of that. You just don't know, not even sort of permission, but you don't, know, you don't even know like how it's going to be received if you clearly state what it is you would like. Well, you have to be, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but you have to be forthright mm-hmm. to get anything. You wouldn't go up to the counter of In-N-Out and be like, um, you know, I was thinking I don't have to have it. Like, it would be nice. Like, I don't totally have to have it. I could have something else. And like, I do have a car so I could go somewhere else. But would be nice to have a burger. Like, I would love cheese on that. Don't totally have, like, if you don't have cheese, we don't need to do, you know, and that is something that women are taught, not directly, you don't take a class in that, but we're definitely taught to lubricate Mm-hmm. Our asks. And I do think that I modeled myself in a certain respects on my father, my brother, and my mom is French. Mm-hmm. She does not need to lubricate her asks for sure. So I think I modeled myself on a lot more forthrightness. I mean, the combination of French and Israeli is like two of the, you know, most forthright folks. But I do find that women, you know, I'm often saying to them, you don't need to ask for permission to specifically take up space. Yeah. And a classic sort of tenet of this sort of belief of being agentic is asking for forgiveness rather than permission. Basically, to assume assume a yes. And also, don't be afraid of hearing no. And if you hear no, like, welcome the rejections, basically. Like, one of the guides here talks about, like, having a Google Doc, basically, like, here's all the people who said no to me, and here's the, here's the rejections you've gotten, and sort of taking those as a, as a mark of, like, well, then you actually asked. You actually did. You, you went out put yourself out there to ask those questions. But there's something I'm fascinated with, which is, I think, a, a spin on Agentic, mm-hmm. which is I know several people, and they're, they're men, who are powerful by virtue of not engaging. Mm. So they won't answer the text or they won't answer the email or they'll let it slide. And I think one time somebody said to me, you know, Lean, you don't have to hit every tennis ball back over the net. You're making yourself very tired doing that. Mm. And I do think if you're following up with everything, if you're answering every email, 
there is a low status to that in a funny way. So if you're just saying, no, I don't want to do that, or I'm not interested in that, I feel like if you can be too forthright and add like an extra level of communication where you can, I've been working on letting things slide a little bit more and not responding to absolutely everything and being a little less scrupulous about that. And I think that's a, there's a funny way where like that is agentic in a way. That is. You know, you don't have to. And I shared an office with a male writer who was really helpful with me. Like one time I called somebody and I thought maybe I hadn't said the right thing. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to call him back and said, I didn't mean this, but I could mean that. But I, I'm sorry I said this, but really blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. And he was like, just stop. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of power in just stopping. And um, so it's interesting. I think it's more about knowing what your goal is and what the steps are to get it, as opposed to resolving to just talk all the time. So let's talk about strategy here is that you and I both have assistants. And part of the reason why we're not responding to every email is because we have assistants who would filter stuff down to us. And like, as, as something becomes important, like Drew will tell me like, oh, this is the thing we actually need to pay attention to. But I'm not worried about like every bit of schedule and every sort of like the 19 times to reset a meeting at the time when Drew was off on his honeymoon, and I suddenly had to do a bunch of that stuff. I was like, oh, wow, this is actually really annoying. I'm, I'm sort of glad to have Drew there. What I do th- see some of these people who are pitching agentic talking about is really sort of think about how to be a good assistant to yourself. Like if you had a great assistant, like wh- what would that assistant be doing for you and how would they be filtering stuff down? Amy, my daughter, was just home over the Christmas holiday and she needed to call and cancel this appointment she had. And she's like, Daddy, can you just do it? Yeah, it stresses her out. It stresses her out. She doesn't want to do that. And she's like, it's weird. Like, I could totally do it for a friend, but I can't do it for myself. And that's what I think the, the skill you have to learn is like, just pretend you are your own assistant and just do the thing. Well, man, um, my assistant, the wonderful Kari O'Hara, happens to be here with me sitting next to Drew. Big plug for Carrie. What's up? High five. You know, one thing I do is when I tell assistants that I may not be flowery in my responses, because I do think they're accustomed to women who are like, if she's saying, do you want to do coffee or lunch? I think they're accustomed to women saying like, ooh, thank you so much for asking. Coffee would be great, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes I'll just text back, no lunch or lunch or no coffee. Or uh, one time we ordered lunch in the writer's room and there was someone's lunch was missing and I was in the middle of running the room and talking. So the only words I managed to squeak out were Phoebe, no lunch. And then we called the group text Phoebe, no lunch. But, you know, I think it's okay if you're one of the things is to try not to lard up all your communications with, again, I'm, I'm back to lubricant. I, mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening this morning, but um, just to be able to find people that you can communicate with directly yeah. and simply mm-hmm. and that they don't need everything to be sprayed with cologne before yeah. they receive it. And I think for women that's, you know, as you get older as a woman and you start to drift towards battle acts, mm-hmm you know, which is a wonderful place that I hope to be eventually where you sort of feel like after a certain age, this is where women, I think, beat men where mm. like, I'm like a really old yeah. woman, like my mom's 93, like she can say and do whatever she wants and she can ask however she wants. So we're all drifting past that where I think men are going to fall into like cranky old man waving a cane. <laughs> but I think one of the things about growing up as a as a lady is learning to get what you want and using softer tactics if you need to, but then also finding people to work with who are comfortable with your directness so that you're not always apologizing to the furniture. Absolutely. So I've cherry picked a bunch of little strategies that different blog posts have listed here. Evie Cottrell has a bunch of them, but uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to them. 
One of them is put a big premium on doing something now rather than later. Um, so don't leave enough time for motivation to fade, which seems like smart advice for writers, but also for anybody who just needs to like get some stuff done. My one cool thing actually has a little bit more about that, but that sense of like, oh, there's going to be a better place or time. Like, I, I'm not ready for it yet. Waiting is, is generally not helpful for almost anybody. Well, my husband has a thing, and I'm sure he got it from a business book or something, but there's a principle called now, soon, later. Mm. And it's things you need to do right away, things you can do soon and things you can do later. Yeah. And it sounds so simple, but sometimes breaking that into like, hey, if I want to make a hair appointment for Thursday, I got to do that now. And then, you know, I need to, to call the upholsterer. I could do that later. Mm-hmm. Just just really breaking those down in your brain. I do think there's value sometimes in taking a second and making sure. I mean, I'm the king of the random text of like the random reach out. Mm-hmm. And if anything, I've tried to, <laughs> to um, take a breath before I do that and make sure it's an important communication, especially if I'm reaching out to someone really busy. Mm-hmm. And then my other thing is I really used to send people a lot of TikToks and I've lately decided <laughs> that I'm just sending them homework. And unless I write below it, can't yeah. send a naked TikTok anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to say, John, I'm sending you this because it's about the word agentic. Yes. Don't just send me a cold TikTok. Con- and I'm, I'm the worst yeah. offender with this, but I've just realized that you're going to, don't, if you're going to send me a reel, Mm-hmm. which is obviously a TikTok that yeah. was, you know, from four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. You got to tell me why you're sending it to me. Yeah, that's fair because you've been on the receiving end of those reels slash TikToks and you got pulled out of your whatever thought train you're in because like Aline's texting me, there must be something important. And no, it's a, it's a very cute chihuahua, <laughs> yeah. but it's not relevant. But reaching out to people is actually part of the set of advice, which is figuring out what you need and figuring out who can help you get it and then asking for it. And those are things that are challenging to do that you feel like there's power imbalances and these agentic people will tell you is that like, just get over your fear of doing that because you can get no answer, you can get a no, um, but you're actually not going to be burning things as much as, as you sort of suspect you will. Well, I would say because we're almost all communicating now electronically, um, a lot of people are still in a letter writing age. Mm. I think it's okay to send an email that goes, you know, Hey, John, um, you know, so-and-so is in town and wants to know if you want to have dinner, bloop, and not, I mean, people still send things with lots and lots of words in it. Um, and I always think of Craig's thing of like the return key is your friend. Uh-huh. Um, but also I think because of texts, wow, when people get to emails, they really roll out the folder all. Yeah. Short emails are fine. Oh. Love them. Delightful. Delightful. Don't need a greeting. Mm. Hey, just. Yo. Yeah, <laughs> cut the first two paragraphs, go right in, in, into <laughs> yeah. the heart of it. I said before about like thriving on rejections or writing down those rejections. Apply for jobs you don't think you'll get because at least you'll actually have the experience of what it is like to interview for those places. Rejections are evidence that you're actually exploring you know, and, and trying things. We've talked a lot on the show about luck and the way that this blog post was phrasing was to increase your service area for serendipity, um, which is like putting more places out there where people can find you and, and recognize like, oh, that's a good idea. This is a, a smart writer. We talk about how you've written that script. That's fantastic. No one is going to read that script unless you put that out in there in the world for people to read. The same applies for any other profession you're doing. If you're a coder, an artist, whatever, you have to put stuff out there so people can see and, and see like, oh, this is a person who knows what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, for certain, you have to eat some embarrassment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're young, you know, my, my older son is in the workplace and I think, you know, sending a cold email or a cold call or reaching out to someone you don't know that well, that might be a help. 
I think that's really hard when you're young because it feels like you don't have the portfolio. Mm -hmm. You're not standing in the right shoes. And I remember that being the hardest thing. When you get more experienced and people are like, oh, I know who John August is. So if he's, you know, emailing me about this thing, uh, you're going to be treated with certain respect. So it's not, it's eating the embarrassment of like someone going, who is this? Mm -hmm. You know, or um, don't send this to me. Or I mean, one time early on in my career, um, really early on, my agent was someone that I had been friends with, and I didn't really understand the lines between friend and um, work friend. And and those can be hard to figure out. And I had found a piece of material that I thought was really interesting, and I called him on the weekend. Um, and again, it was someone we, that I was friends with, so I sort of thought that was okay. And I called him on the weekend, and I said, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? And he was really angry. Mm. He was really angry. Like, and he said, how dare you call me on the weekend when I'm home with my family and talk to me about work? And I can remember, you know, when you, something embarrassing happens, your body floods with adrenaline, your brain starts printing Polaroids. Yeah. <laughs> so I can remember where I was sitting in my kitchen at the table that I had bought at the flea market, you know, the Pasadena City College flea market and painted myself. I mean, I can remember where I was sitting and I was so deeply humiliated that I had disrupted him and that I didn't know that rule. And what I did and what I do a lot with uncomfortable work things is I convert it into something funny. Yes. And I can I I I tend to save those things up as little stories mm -hmm. to then tell other people. And that is the way that I sort of like pop the pimple on my embarrassment. But you're going to do that when you're young. You're going to try. You're going to go somewhere. And that's why I like the whole every time, you know, when you're a young person, it's like we're going to be networking. And you just have a clenching of the <laughs> clenching of the sphincter because it just sounds like it's going to be awful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you will have awful interactions, but, you know, you might meet your best friend after a something where you tried to pitch yourself to someone. And they, I mean, I've had also, I had when I was young, a couple of things where someone thought I was someone else. I just recently told her the story, but I once met with a producer and we were walking in and the executive said, are you ready for this meeting? And the gentleman said, I'm always ready for a meeting with my favorite writer, Jenny Bix. <laughs> and then we all stood there frozen. And then the poor executive had to say, this is actually not Jenny, <laughs> Jenny Bix. And then, you know, we had, I then had to have a meeting with someone who like very clearly didn't really know who I was, probably hadn't read my stuff. You know, again, got to eat embarrassment and just go. And it's like, you know what? This is still an opportunity. This is still a great producer. Maybe something will come from it. My second meeting with that gentleman, by the way, he was wearing a wet bathing suit. Continue. Oh, good Lord. Uh, talk about like, lines being transgressed. <laughs> uh, and he felt no shame. You felt None. shame about the original <laughs> moment there. Going back to your story of like, you, you called the executive on uh, the weekend and, and realized like, oh, I crossed a boundary that I shouldn't have crossed. Yes, you hold on to those those moments, not because you want to fixate and ruminate them, because you, as a writer, you actually can use them. So while it did not directly lead to any scene in Devil Wears Prada, yeah, of course. that experience is something that carries through to her character. Prada was so resonant for me because I had completely failed as a magazine writer. Yeah. And I remember calling New York Woman um, with my then partner. And the I was trying to leave a message, like a query message, you know, but it kept beeping, <laughs> kept beeping and cutting us off. So it was like... Hi, we're so and so and so and so, and we're really excited to write for New York Women because we think, babe. Oh no! So then it's like, do you call? Back? 
<laughs> do you yeah, call back? And if you call back, are you starting from scratch? Right? No, what do I, you do? Are you starting from scratch or are, you, or are you saying, sorry, I think I got cut off. I'm Aline and, and I wanted to, and then I got cut off again. And that was, then you, I was you're, like, you're in, the, I, you're in the swinger scene at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I then wanted to abandon ship, but uh-huh. I thought that's worse. So this, so she changed her name so that she could never track her down again. This editor from New York Woman, wherever you are, I'm really sorry for mm-hmm. the six half tries <laughs> that I left on your machine. But again, you know, trying to laugh about the rejections. And I think, you know, even if you're taking a more serious tack to it, it's, it's, yeah, it's at bats, man. The, the best baseball player, what's a, what's a great baseball average? 380. Oh, wow. John's I, even worse than I am. You guys, it, what's no. good? Oh, wow. We're in a showbiz room. There's not a person in here. I think that's like the last episode, like <laughs> baseball is not my thing. I'll guess basketball. Yeah. Yeah. I think high 300s is right. a good baseball, average, which is, you know, you fail over 70% of the time. All right. We'll wrap up this topic 60%. with 60%. Keep going. We'll wrap up on a, <laughs> I love a good metaphor. And so, uh, this was called the, the moat of low status. Kate Hall has a blog post about it. She says, when learning a new skill set, it requires you to cross a moat of low status, a period of time when you are actually bad at the thing or fail to know things that are obvious to most other people. It's a moat both because you can't just leap to the other side, but also because it gives anybody who can cross it a real advantage. And so sometimes these really awkward moments is recognizing like, this is the moat. I'm in the moat and it's going to suck and you're going to be kind of floundering and sort of half drowning. But when you get to the other side, like, oh, you actually did cross over. And in some ways, I feel like we always talk about like the wall around Hollywood are breaking in, but it's really, it's swimming across that moat is really, I think, a better way of thinking about sort of like what it's like to enter into this industry. Yeah. And that's where relationships mm-hmm. really are helpful. Like, when you and I met, I think I was pregnant or I just had a baby. It was, a, it was you know, 20 years ago. And you were definitely ahead of me in terms of like getting rewrites and talking to people about those things. And I can remember conversations that was like not that long before the strike. And I can remember us having conversations where I would say to you, like, how do you do this? Or how do you initiate that? And I do that for people too. And I yeah. always encourage them to call me because sometimes it's learning how to make that approach or how to, you know, dig yourself out of whatever hole. That's why I think it's still important to live here, honestly, more than anything else is just to not to meet. Young people often think they're here to meet the important folks. You're not. You're there to meet your peers. You know, Drew and Kari sitting on the couch, you know, later when we ask them for jobs. Yeah. It's, It's important to create those things so that you can call people who are on and about your level, right? It's like, a step below, a step above are the most helpful people because they'll also remember what that was like, you know, getting an agent, taking meetings with agents, you know, what what was a good meeting, what wasn't, is this person good or not? To me, the the little floats across the moat are these relationships. Yeah. And so I treasure those peer relationships that I had when I was a young person so much. Well, it's also important to remember that like, we swam across the moat in a different era and the, yes. moat, the moat has changed. And that's yes. why it's important to have people who are in the same struggle that you're in. That's right. What I do now when young people come to town, they want to talk to me is I get the assistants together in my office and their friends mm-hmm. to talk to them because I, I mean, if you want to know how to break in in 1991, I could, <laughs> I can really help you if you got a time travel machine, but it's so, so different now. Yeah. And it's much more useful for young people to find other young people than to talk to me because I just have different moats. The moats never end. I think it's also important to say that the moats never end. And I was talking to someone who has a movie in contention in the award season. And, you know, what always happens is like it coalesces around a couple things. And it's like, 
the Oppenheimer bulldozer is coming. And so for other movies, even though they're in this amazing conversation and they're doing panels and events, like walking through those things, knowing you're not going to win anything is dispiriting. And it's hard to, I was trying to say to this person, like, you're doing great, but they were feeling bad. They were feeling like they were in a moat because they were now going to go to 20 events where they were going to watch the same people win over and over. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, not, not all moats are the same, but we all, we all have them. All right. Let's get on to our other marquee topic. Uh, How would this be a movie? One of our favorite things we've added over the years. This first article comes from Ian Ismail and Mary Harris writing for Slate. It's called Never Use Alone. It's about Jesse Blanchard. She's an operator and education director for Never Use Alone. It's this hotline designed to reduce the risk of overdose for drug users who are alone. So basically, you call this hotline when you're about to use drugs, heroin, whatever. She stays on the line with you before you actually use. She's like, you know, unlock the door, tell me where your address is. And then if she hears you overdosing, she will call for emergency services. So the story follows one specific call with Kimber King, who's recently out of rehab and sort of highlighting sort of post-rehab life there. And also gets into a bit of like Blanchard's personal journey there into harm reduction. Aline, what did you make of this article? Like, is there a movie there? Is there a character there? Like, what do you think is the, is the story I don't here? know if that's a whole thing, but it's a really good kickoff, I thought, for like a thriller or a murder mm-hmm. mystery or something. Again, not to, I don't want to minimize the like important life or death work mm-hmm. that these folks are doing. And it's it's a great idea. And I, I'm really always in favor of things that treat people as they are, not as we hope they should be. But I do think it's because it's over the phone, because there's someone silently listening. It almost made me think of Blowout, the Mm -hmm. the diploma movie with Travolta on the bridge with his, yeah. It seems like you could stumble into some sort of mystery, criminal conspiracy by listening to her on the phone. And I don't know if it's about uh, drugs and people who traffic drugs. I don't know if you, there's a, PJ Vote has a new podcast. Have you listened to Search Engine? He has an episode about why fentanyl is in everything. It seems like it could be a, a good jumping off point for a story about, you know, the that world of drugs and availability, but also could kick you into maybe a genre piece that had a mystery or a thriller. Absolutely. So it's always that issue of like, if it's a two hour movie, it's a one time story. There has to be something remarkable about this out of all the things, this is the happenstance that kicks into this specific story. That's not a thing that happens all the time. I think she is potentially a really interesting character because her, her background is a nurse, her own family lost to uh, addiction, and trying to walk this this line of like wanting to help people, but realizing that in helping people, she may be prolonging their addiction. That is really interesting. But I agree that there has to be some inciting incidents beyond just what's usual. For sure. I mean, the other thing is it could be someone's job inside of a thing where, like, let's say you have an emergency response team and they do suicide intervention. And, you know, if you wanted to do something with several people, it could be a job that mm-hmm. someone has because there's this aspect of silent witness and overhearing. Those are good sort of Hitchcocky feeling things. Yeah. Well, one other possibility would be to actually just do the origin story of like sort of how she came to do this. So it's like, it's the first time she's doing this thing. Basically, after a loss in the family, she's she's doing this for the first time because she doesn't want this thing to happen. It's going to have to go somewhere. It 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 would have to go somewhere. It has to be like, you know, who are the obstacles there? Like, who are the people who are telling her no? What is she overcoming? Like, what is the journey that she's going through? She somehow gets connected to her cheating ex-husband and doesn't call at 911 when she should. Mm -hmm. Maybe. That's not this exact woman. No. But that could be a different character. Yeah. 
Second up, we have um, an article by Emily Alpert-Reyes and Sandy Caracamo for the LA Times. This one's looking at cases of silicosis, which is an incurable lung disease that's happening in, among California workers, particularly those who are cutting and polishing engineered stone, like silicon kitchen countertops. It's affecting workers at a much younger age. People in their 20s and 30s are getting a, a fatal incurable uh, lung condition. The story follows particularly Alibardo Segura Mesa, a 27-year-old father diagnosed with silicosis. So this is a California story for this one, mostly Los Angeles County, and the questions of sort of like what controls or safety things we're going to put here. Man, that was distressing. Yeah, it was distressing. My first thought is like it's, it's an Aaron Brockovich thing. Whenever there's like it's like bad things are happening to people and no one's paying attention, that it's an Aaron Brockovich kind of story where you have somebody coming in to uh, recognize the situation and fight for them and to help them. That's one option. But I'm also wondering if there's a way to have the people who are being affected be more the drivers of the story. Yeah, it was the, it's so funny. I had the exact same thought, which is those kind of someone from the outside is a savior story. Mm-hmm. Apart from occasionally feeling inauthentic, I think have been done so much. Yeah. Could it be a story about people who have to organize who've never organized before? I was really distressed to hear that there are interventions with water and other equipment that they yeah. could use to make it better, but they won't. I don't know that this one jumped out at me as anything other than a background mm-hmm. piece. It feels like there's a lot of businesses which can be shady based on how they're implemented, not inherently shady, but how they're implemented. I mean, to me, this just made me think of like how really venally consumerist and bottom line based our economy has become that the idea that you would protect workers and that you would have those things in place to protect them is just not a first thought. I just think we've gotten increasingly like, if you make a buck, then that's all that matters. And it's probably, you know, getting the water probably costs money mm-hmm. and getting the right equipment probably costs money. So I would see it more as like, if you were doing a movie like The Big Short or something, and one of the businesses that you stumble across is someone who's just, you know, rampantly killing people when he could be doing something else, but it didn't jump out at me as its own piece. Yeah, I didn't get the sense that the countertop manufacturers or stuff that were like, they could be negligent, but they weren't like evil. Sometimes it was just the ignorance that they didn't know what was happening there. And sometimes it was like people who were like, just not trained to do this thing or weren't aware of sort of what the actual problems, the dangers are, because apparently it's different than cutting other stone. Like, you know, if you're cutting granite, you're not gonna have the same issues yeah. as you are with this special thing. I think it's, yeah, it's those composites, right? Yeah. A friend of mine's mother uh, called her and said, I'm thinking of having my counters replaced because we have this stuff that's harmful. <laughs> and and we were saying, well, it's, it's you know, it's already in there. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's because... probably going to, when you cut it up to get it out, you might cre- be creating the very thing that you're protesting. Yeah. So it's, it's not a problem existing there in a space. Like you, I'm not sure there's a full movie here. It felt like this is the context background for a Law & Order episode. Like it's, it's, it's a thing that's happening and we're meeting with people of it because of that situation, but it doesn't feel like it's necessarily driving the whole thing. The other way you could get into this is that it's a story about this family and the patriarch of the family, the young father of the family is going to be dying at a young age because of this thing. And that's an interesting story that I haven't seen before. And he learns how to represent himself as a lawyer and he takes the case. Even if the court case isn't foregrounded, the sense of like, you know, what is it like to be a young father who knows he's he's going to die of an incurable thing, like an old man's disease, that could be an interesting story, whether he's the central character or he's the father of the protagonist. I mean, one of the things that's happened, this happens also when people send me books, is that, you know, Hollywood swings back and forth between doing things that are 
you know, required special handling and the sausage factory. Mm-hmm. And it's, it has swung back and forth many times since you and I have been doing this. And it, and, um, TV and movies like to take turns doing this. In the world of Super Mario Brothers being the most successful movie, I don't know that this is commercial. And that's the other, again, that's why I, I tend towards genrefying these because if there's a murder or an extortion or a way to make it night agent, because otherwise, I mean, we're not really engaging with how commercial things are. But right now, there's such an emphasis on things that are super commercial that I look back on things that, like Aaron Brockovich, just wondering who would make that. And you'd probably get, yeah. yeah. I, I still think you'd make Aaron Brockovich, but it has to be an award. With season a big star. Movie. Yeah, with, a big star. Have, with a big star. So you wouldn't put it out in the summer. You'd put it out in December to get a bunch of awards. Yeah. And that would be driving it. This might be more commercial. Uh, this is called Loyalty Testers. It is uh, Gina Terrillis writing for the New York Times. It looks at this uh, service called Loyalty Test, where they hire these quote-unquote testers to flirt with people's partners online and assess their loyalty. So it tracks Caden Redmond, who's a college student who charges $100 per test, uh, which involves starting a conversation on TikTok or Instagram and sort of gauging their response to those uh, romantic advances and then like reporting back to the person who hired them whether they got something out of it. And so... There's people who do it sort of freelance, but this this service has recruited a bunch of testers and about a thousand customers and sort of they're sort of going on through it. Aline, so this feels like it's in a relationship space. I can see a rom-com version of this. What are your instincts with loyalty testers? Yeah, I mean, there's always some rom-com version of this floating around, whether it's like you go on dates and you try and do this. Now it's 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 sort of catfishing um online things. This is a TikTok genre. There's a couple of people who do this on TikTok and they'll show you the text. It has an unpleasantness to mm-hmm. it that I think as a romantic comedy, I think if it was like sharper, more edgy, more like bottoms or something mm-hmm. where it was a little bit more irreverent and anarchic because you're kind of dealing with shitty behavior from both the person who's fishing and then the, the person who's been fished, although... I don't know that this always means that people want to cheat or if people are excited to have been flirted with. It is kind of shocking in those TikToks how fast particularly men go to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I'm going to be in Phoenix next week. So what are you doing? And uh, yeah. I'd love to get a drink. But I don't know. It does. It's it depressed me. So I wonder if it's the jumping off place. It's like you have a person who is a tester who's become so jaded and cynical about love. And like they're the person who has to be finally won over that there are actually good hearted people that cannot be tempted or, or pulled away. That's probably the best way in there. But there's another, there's a non-rom-com version of this as well, of course, which is that like, you think you're doing one thing, but it actually spirals way out of control and, you, and you know, someone's life is put in danger because of this flirting, this, you know. Or you, you it's Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. you know, or somebody says, I want you to test this person, but what you don't realize is it's Putin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I guess you could you could play with that a little bit. I mean, No Hard Feelings, which I really enjoy, oh, yeah. you know, had an aspect of somebody's hired to do. Somebody's hired to do a something is like a genre yeah. on, on its own. Yeah. I wrote one of those. That's three to tango. So someone hires someone to do a something and it leads to unintended consequences is a genre of which I thought Bottoms did a, a fun job of like it turned into about four different movies yes. along the way. And um, I thought that that sort of contributed to the fun sort of anarchic spirit of it, that they have a very tiny germ of an idea, and then it it leads them in hither and thither. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to do something with like a satirical edge in the way that this 
has a satirical edge. Um, there's also Pain Hustlers is yeah. a movie I think of recently. So it's scammy people. Then it feels like it's got a satiric yeah. aspect to it. Yeah, don't sleep on No Hard Feelings. If if you miss it in theaters, like it's worth a watch. It's really well done. Yeah, and, and uh, I, the funniest scene of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fight on the beach. Yes. Yeah, love it. so good. Next up, we have Zachary Crockett writing for The Hustle. This is about a man who won the lottery 14 times. Stefan Mandel, who is a Romanian mathematician, exploited loopholes in various lotto systems to buy every possible combination. So if you have to get six numbers, there's only a certain number of variations and you can actually just buy them all up. And the formula basically works out. If uh, it's worth it, if it's like three times the amount of money you're going to spend, you should absolutely do it because it can pay off. The challenge, of course, is that logistically, it's absolutely a nightmare to buy all those tickets, but you can do it. And so he's he won the Virginia lottery and some other ones, got quite rich off the Virginia lottery. Ultimately, the story continues, went through, through bankruptcy. There were lawsuits and other things. He's now living a quiet life in Vanuatu. A lottery movie. Is there a thing to do here? The one thing that jumped out at me was, you know, when you're watching a heist and they're putting together a group of guys... And it felt like one of the group of guys has retired to Vanuatu and this is his claim to fame. Yes. And so they're putting together, mm. they need someone who crunches the numbers and it's this guy. And I would pitch the guy from um, the season of Fargo who plays the hitman, okay. if you've seen it. I haven't seen it. So we'll find out what the name of that actor is. But like someone really enigmatic and interesting with a foreign accent who made a killing doing something sort of abstrusely mathy like this yes. and then retired to an island, but they have to bring him back mm-hmm. for this um, heist on a casino. That's what I pictured. So that's not a whole movie, but it's it's a really fun backstory for somebody. Yeah, and it's good to bring up heists because this thing has a heist feeling because they're not breaking the law, but it's just like logistically, it's just so challenging to do what they're doing. I have to convince so many people and, and sort of the social engineering of it all was, it was a huge factor as well. There's just mechanics of doing this thing, but it needs to be, there needs to be a larger purpose. And that's why I think you're going to like, you know, they're pulling somebody in to do this one extra job makes more sense. Cause if it's just like, we want to make a bunch of money, nobody cares. That's not actual real stakes. Uh, it's, you have to do it for, there's something that he's actually really going for here. Originally he's doing it so he can escape from Romania. So that feels like, you know, a very great purpose. Did you see Blackberry? I, I loved Blackberry, yeah. It kills. Yeah. And it's, you know, what I loved about it is everyone is there for a different reason. And um, Glenn's character really does not care about what they're doing or why. Yeah, he just wants a hockey team. <laughs> he just wants a hockey team. <laughs> and he continues. Well, it's, so what I loved about that character piece was that he was so good. At, he was such a jerk, but then he was so good at being the exact guy they needed in that exact moment. And then somehow... It's sort of a version of the Peter principle, like it itched some part of his brain, which caused him to completely take his eye off the ball and mm-hmm. then just just grind on the hockey thing, which was so funny. But that sort of single-mindedness, the character who's single-minded to the point of being sort of socially inept, mm-hmm. it, it feels like one of these. Yeah. So I bet Noah Hawley could do something with, I could see a season of Fargo where they do something like this. Uh, Glenn's character in Blackberry is agentic. He's so he's the most agentic. Yes, absolutely. Like, he and 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 uh, Emma Stone in Poor Things quite yeah. agentic, and I would say that Barbie's pretty agentic. Barbie's agentic too. Yeah, none of them are afraid to uh, make fools of themselves. They're happy to pick up the phone and get an answer. They you know they know what they don't know, and they're they're not letting that get in the way. So let's look back through these things and see which of these might actually be movies. And also, we should talk about like which of these things do you need to get those specific rights, or is it just the general story space? So. Never use a loan. 
Is there anything? I don't know how widespread that is. If it's just this one lady, that's a different um, from like if that's been adopted as a widespread practice. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm there are many movies about suicide hotlines, and this is sort of a a judge on this. I mean, it's very topical, and it's a thing people are interested in. What do you think? I think it's an interesting space. I could see the indie film version of. I can see the Sundance movie that's in this space. You would then get her rights, get her life rights, maybe. Because then it's it's nice to be able to have her as a person, as a, not just a resource, but also as part of the, you don't want to say marketing of the movie, but... I, the narrative around a movie. Yeah. And, you know, that's a really good point, Sean, in that, like, for the smaller movies, the narrative around the movies is sometimes just as important. Oh, yeah. 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 So I think that could be helpful. Her goals in terms of, like, you know, keeping people from dying alone of overdoses would be served by this movie existing. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. That too. Countertop Cancer. We don't think there's a movie here. No, not really. No. It, it seems like it's a it's an element of something. Yeah, absolutely. So the article is interesting. You don't need to buy that article. It's just it's I think it's a backdrop for something, but it's there's nothing here specifically you want to hold on to. Loyalty testers. It's been around for a long time. Those sort of ideas of I test your spouse's fidelity is twas ever thus. You know, just finding a new spin on it. I I feel like there's probably a Cary Grant movie, which is how I, Well, here's the issue though. Yeah. Elect you know, people staring at their phone like some mm. of the funniest things that happen in your life now happened with your hand out and you looking yeah. like you're telling people a hilarious story <laughs> and the visual is, you know, you lying in bed, um, just looking at your phone. I mean, we have so many interact virtual interactions now and this type of thing is quite a virtual experience. And so romantic comedies are one of the genres where, you know, using electronics, I'm not sure, but I feel like one of the reasons Holdovers was set in 1971 mm-hmm. was so that, you know, it's an awfully short movie if someone can just call an Uber, Yeah, you know? So I think sometimes technology can make these things a little dry, yeah. you know, there's not literally not much to look at. So I would rather do a movie about um, somebody who hires themselves out to go to Rome and find out if the king of Denmark will cheat on the queen before they get me. The queen of Denmark hires you to go and flirt with him and see if he will, you know, sort of that idea of testing fidelity is sort of a better almost Shakespearean idea oh, than yeah. the specifics of how you're doing it now. I think if you are going to try to do something like this, you have to look at Zola or other movies that are... Oh, are God, I love Zola. Yes, you're right. Really good at sort of like, you know, great. finding a ways to sort of manifest what that online conversation yeah, looks like. Yeah, great call. Great call. And they did that really well there. But the other thing is like people get in trouble a lot with Instagram messages. Mm-hmm. You know, people are messaging people they're not supposed to on Instagram yeah. after a stranger re- reaches out to them. It just goes to show that like human desire for t- connection or lust or whatever it is really overrides the logic button. I have friends <laughs> who are absolute strangers who met on Instagram and are dating for years. So Through the, the DMs. Through slid the DMs. into the DMs. Slid I don't DMs. like the expression slid into the yeah, DMs. Yeah, that's so filthy. Back to our lubricant <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and finally, uh, the lottery winner. So is there a lottery winner movie? Not per se, I don't think. Yeah, I like your notion of sort of taking a piece of that uh, idea of that character and bringing that into something else. I think if you're going to do the story, I think you're going to probably want something to back this up on. Uh, If there's really good original reporting on this stuff and somebody who has the the real scoop on all this stuff, great. But I'm not sure that you necessarily need it. Obviously, if Craig were here, he'd say like, if it's all true facts, 
Nobody owns history. If it's reported, for yeah, sure, if yeah. that's been reported. Yeah. That's different from whether you're just, you're going to do a first-person story about what it feels like to mm-hmm. live in Romania and how you find these things, you know, as opposed to using that and that math and that those statistical things for a different character. All right. Do any of these movies get made? Yeah, I don't see you following up on this batch, but really interesting to think about. And, yeah. and, and one of the reasons I really like that you do this is because people struggle to find ideas. And I remember one of my early writing teachers was like, take the New York Times and put it in front of you and there's a hundred movies in oh, there. Yeah. And that really is true. I think what's harder to do and which, you know, you do your whole career is figure out like, why does this speak to me? And mm. what what do I really want to talk about here? And it's interesting how much like an idea or a book or something will resonate with you and you don't really know why. Like, an example is my most memed of movies. We bought a zoo. I really wanted to write that. I really resonated to it. I really had to have it. I really had a clear vision of it. And it wasn't until well into writing it that I realized my dad, um, who's an Israeli guy, an engineer, moved to, we moved to a house in New Jersey that had nine horses and a bunch of ducks and chickens. And so here's this guy who is you know, an engineer and really just works with his brain, yeah. all of a sudden having to muck out stalls and, you know, so, but I didn't even think of that mm. when I grabbed that story. And similarly, sometimes people submit me things and they're perfectly great, but they don't light up the little light board in the brain that you need to to follow your interest through the project. Absolutely. All right. It's time for our one cool things. Aline, what do you have for us this week? Okay. So sometimes I just do like really like not useful ditties. Mm -hmm. But this time, I have a thing that many, many women have called melasma, which is when, look at John's uh, pregnant place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you get discolorations on your Mm -hmm. face and they're hormonal. I used to have it really bad after I had babies. It's just subject to hormones. Your face will have these like brown patches. They're usually like on your cheeks or over your lip. They're also enhanced by sun. Yeah. So I've tried to treat it for a really long time and like I've done lasers and various creams and then I was influenced by Instagram and there's a company, was Instagram or TikTok? One of those, but there's a company called Muesli, M-U-S-E-L-Y, and you get on the website and you describe what your skin looks like and then you send them a picture and you show them where it is on your face and they concoct a thing for you that has bleaching agents and tretinoins and different things. I'm sure that's none of what I said was right, but you know, something like that. They put a cocktail of skin stuff. First, they send you a peel, Mm -hmm. which is this, or depending on what you need, but they sent me this thing called the spot peel. So you walk around for 12 hours with like what looks like toothpaste on your face. And then you wash that off and then you follow it up with a cream. And I was highly skeptical, but it really worked. And my left side of my face is really almost totally cleared up. My right side, my left side, which is the driving side, which mm. is where the sun damage always is, still has a patch here. But you know what? And it felt they're really good customer service. It comes right away. They tell you when it's coming. They make the refill process really good. You know, sometimes people have a good idea for a business, but the interface is not, I'm not breaking any news here, but the interface is not good. The interface of Muesli is really good. And you get communications from them and they explain to you why they're sending you this thing and the instructions are good. So is it a scam? Is it, I don't know. I don't know anything about it except that it worked for me. Good. Yeah, you had a good customer experience. There. I had a good yeah. customer experience and good results. I oh, love it. My one cool thing is a blog post by Adam Mastroianni called, So You Want to Debog Yourself. And uh, it kind of ties into some of the things we talked about in terms of being agentic. 
he's talking about sort of like those situations where you kind of just feel like you're stuck in a bog and you just sort of can't get out. You're just like kind of trapped in the mud. And I always love a good metaphor for things. He has a lot of really good metaphors for sort of the stories you tell yourself about why you can't get out or sort of the, the frustrations you feel. So gutterballing, which is basically you're moving in the right direction, but you're already in the gutter. And so like, I thought that was really funny. Uh, no, matter yeah. what you, no matter what you do, you're, you're still not going to strike. Uh, waiting for the jackpot when someone says like, here's a solution. It's like, yes, but that doesn't solve all of my problems. It's not magical. The mediocrity trap, stroking the problem. Um, so some really good... Stroking the problem felt an SFW, if I'm being I'm, honest. It does, it does. But uh, that's basically where like you're acknowledging the problem and you're talking about the problem and you're, you're pointing to the problem without actually trying to solve the problem. Um, John, I'm going to pitch an all to agentic. Please. Which is pageantic. So I, I'm just going to act like I'm in a beauty pageant all the time. You're going to do that that elbow, elbow, wave, wave? Yeah. Elbow, elbow, wave, wave. I'm going to divide every meeting into a swimsuit, mm-hmm. um, interview, talent, pagentic. Pagentic. What do you guys think of pagentic? Or, they love it. Uh, no, I'm just telling you. It's just around. a different way of doing <laughs> big, hair, big hair and a sash. <laughs> 2024, my word is pagentic. Pagentic. <laughs> 100%. I, I would love John coming in with a sash. Just yeah. a sash that says Mr. Hancock Park. One of your one cool things originally was uh, sort of a sling for your iPhone. Oh, yeah. And if that was a sash rather than a sling, two things killed at once. Can you still believe they didn't send me like one free bandolier? Come on. Come you, on, you, guys. You started that whole trend. We now all know I'm, it started here. That's right. I love it all. The last bit of this blog post that I thought was really smart was the difference between diploma problems and toothbrushing problems. Oh, God. So yes. a diploma is something you get once and then you're, you're done. And a toothbrushing is basically, you got to do it every day. And some people confuse the two things. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. I hate the eating and the sleeping and the thing that you have to do all, especially, you know, it's the worst is the working out. Mm. Let yeah. me just work out for an entire day once a month. Yeah. Instead of the, it's the constant drumbeat. Anything that's a constant drumbeat. I'm not a routinized person. My husband really is, and I'm really yeah. not. And the constant drumbeat of the feeding the dog, the brushing the teeth, things that have to be done every day. Don't like it. You have three dogs now. Are you brushing your dog's teeth? Yes. Yes, of course. That was a hundred percent honest. Yes, uh, everyone will know that. Everyone brushes. who knows me knows that Jimmy the dog. You you can't even put a leash on him. So the yeah. idea that you're brushing his teeth, <laughs> I've got one of those like snarl, like little adorable snarl balls of uh-huh. a Chihuahua. Um, there's many popular ones on TikTok, but he's just basically like a little dust of snarl uh-huh. most of the time, interrupted with like some kisses and uh-huh. and cuddles. But he's a uh, no. So we put some stuff in their water mm. and then we have a treat that we give them. But I don't know. I don't think it's a good. And then, you know, every once in a while we have a lady come over and wrestle them to the ground. <laughs> Swear to God. Um, because I don't want to anesthetize them mm-hmm. because I know someone whose dog died being anesthetized for dental and I would really feel bad. So we found somebody who will um, just re- wrestle your dog to the <laughs> ground with a bunch of towels and non-consensually brush their teeth. Uh, Lambert, luckily, is a very happily toothbrusher. I mean, he just like just open up, up his mouth and just, just go to it. That's a really August thing to be. Yeah. yeah. Like a very like, yeah, I got to do this. It needs yeah. to get done. Yeah. I know. I'm still laughing about Mike, the day that Mike broke all his habits. Because mm-hmm. yeah. he had like 60 things where he was like on Duolingo in his running app. He had like 50 things where he was competing for these like fake electronic rings of success. <laughs> And so I feel like having a dog that, like, your dog is probably has an app mm-hmm. where after you brush its teeth, it, like, logs it. 
Yeah, it doesn't yet, but I, I've definitely <laughs> wanted to get those little buttons that dogs can push. Yes. And it's because like, you know. Toothbrush. Uh, toothbrush. But then I feel like toothbrush. they're just training me to do stuff. So, no. <laughs> treat. Treat. Play. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <sighs> get another dog. Yes. No. Mm-hmm. No more dogs. That's our show for this week. Woo-hoo! Oh, very exciting. Scribbins is produced by Drew Marquardt. Edited by Matthew Chlelly. Our outro this week is by Larry Duzyke. If you have an outro, send us a link to ask at johnaugust.com. That's also the place where you can send questions. You can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at johnaugust.com. That's also where you find the transcripts and sign up for our weekly newsletter called Interesting, which has lots of links to things about writing. Interesting exists because of Lean Rosh McKenna making fun of how I don't put the T in interesting. Me? Make fun of someone? Mm, I would never. Never, ever. We have t-shirts and hoodies. They're great. You can find them at Cotton Bureau. Aline keeps pitching. Oh, yeah, guys, I want to make yeah. a workout set. Yes. What do you, if, if we make a Script Notes workout set, mm-hmm. it doesn't even need to be like a Lycra one. It can be like a T-shirt and leggings. Yeah. I, I think people would like it, something for the ladies, something yeah. specifically for the ladies. And, and the legs is basically a, an overlooked thing. The challenge is Cotton Bureau doesn't make uh, right. doesn't make sweatpants or leggings, uh, so we're looking for a vendor and okay. we have pretty high standards. I know your stuff is good. Yeah, I know. I looked into it and I couldn't find anything, but maybe I I feel maybe like our, our a viewer listeners. will have also. Yeah. I'd I'd wear a script notes onesie. Sure, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, love it. Uh, you can sign up to become a premium member at scriptnotes.net, where you get all the back episodes and bonus segments like me and Aline talking about being empty nesters. Aline, it's never an empty nest when you're here with me. Oh, oh this is so nice to talk oh. chat with you. 